Hello, I'm Harry Porterfield. In this edition of People, Places and Things, we'll examine civil rights, then and now. Along with my colleagues, Charles Thomas and Cheryl Burton, we'll talk to a few of the men and women who experienced the movement from a Chicago point of view. To understand why Chicago was one of a handful of northern cities to become a focal point for the civil rights movement, you have to consider the effects of the Great Migration to the North. Since the 1800s, the Great Migration brought many African-American families to Chicago. The end of World War I and the introduction of the cotton gin in the 1940s once again prompted southern blacks to find jobs in the industrialized North. While Chicago's rail yards, stockyards, and steel mills offered better paying jobs, a better life was not without its challenges. Many of the blacks who left the South during and after, right after World War I, we were confined to a very segregated area because uh, landlords and landowners made an agreement to have what became known as restrictive covenants, that they would not rent or sell to people of color, which meant we were then confined by their judgment to an area called the Black Belt. We were literally confined to that area. So many of African-Americans left the South to come North. The indecency of Jim Crow laws was so oppressive, it kind of drove us in this direction. Of course, Chicago was such a, a great center of culture. From decades of migration, Chicago had created what was known as the Black Metropolis. Bronzeville, as we know it today, offered new opportunities for African Americans. With opportunity came an affluent, organized, and educated community looking to advocate against the status quo. Now you probably think of the nation's deep south when you think about the struggle for civil rights. But Chicago was no stranger to the struggle. In 1955, while many Southerners were participating in the Montgomery bus boycott, a young Eddie Wyatt was organizing Chicago blacks on the issue of labor. During this time, the Union stockyards were a breeding ground for labor unrest. An impassioned leader, Eddie saw this as her opportunity to speak out. I had the ability to speak up, and I was willing to do that, to speak up uh, for decent housing, working conditions, because these were some of the needs of our parents. Just as in the South, Chicago's African-American community found strength in its churches. Originally founded as the Mount Zion Baptist Church, the Vernon Park Church was one of many churches that kindled the flames of hope. We called upon our church, the members of our church, and uh, the members of our community to band together to add the kinds of strength that we needed. And we found that it was one way of bringing about change in our lives. While Ms. Wyatt found success within organized labor, the lack of equal access to housing became another pressing issue. Apartments that used to house one family began to be used for four families in the same space. 
in this confined area, we had to make adjustments in terms of our relationships with one another. As a matter of fact, when we first moved to Chicago, as children, we moved so many places in one month. Sometimes we forgot where we really lived. They could find housing only in certain neighborhoods and those would become very crowded and then the boundary would expand, uh, often with violence. So the idea was that we had to break the barriers. Many claim that the barrier, intentional or not, was created by the late Mayor Richard J. Daley. In the 1950s and 60s, um, this city, while Daley was the mayor, built um, 167 high-rises, most of them in black neighborhoods, heavily black neighborhoods. But he set up many racial barriers. The location of the Dan Ryan Expressway, for example. One of the key fights in breaking the barrier was a discrimination lawsuit filed against the Chicago Housing Authority. In a landmark ruling, a federal court decided against the city. This pattern of containing blacks so they wouldn't move into white neighborhoods was illegal. Even before that historic decision in 1969, the man who truly turned the spotlight on Chicago's reputation as the most segregated city in America was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He was invited by several groups to lend his voice to what would later be known as the Chicago Freedom Movement. We in the Chicago Freedom Movement are continuing our drive to make a decent sanitary housing conditions a reality for all of the Negro citizens and deprived citizens of this community, and uh, also to see that slums are truly ended. But King's arrival was not met with excitement at City Hall. In fact, many big city mayors all over the country were concerned about Martin Luther King's presence inciting riots. Chicago's Mayor Daley was no different. He, he thought, this is the end. The great Martin Luther King is coming to town, and uh, all the African Americans are going to rally behind him, and I'm finished. When we return, Charles Thomas will expand on the effect of Dr. King's presence in Chicago. The outbreak of violence in the South propelled Dr. King into the national spotlight. In 1964, as a result of marches in Selma, Alabama and Washington, D.C., the Civil Rights Act was passed prohibiting discrimination in voting, education and the use of public facilities. At that time, we left, we came back from Selma and Dr. King announced a few days later he was going to come to Chicago for an urban movement. Martin Luther King was one of the most powerful persons in the country at that point. The reason that King wanted to bring his movement to Chicago was to challenge racism in its northern character, which was segregation in housing. Here in Chicago, blacks were faced with tough opposition on the issue of fair housing. Because of this, they rallied. 
and formed a coalition known as the Chicago Freedom Movement. The Chicago Freedom Movement was a movement of working people, poor people, those who had needs, black and white and Hispanic. And uh, we were involved in the struggle to make life better for ourselves as children. And we did that. We marched. The Coordinating Council of Community Organizations invited Dr. King to Chicago to inspire their efforts against segregation and to bring attention to the housing reforms they sought. His message was universal because of his international fame would be able to come to Chicago and break the barriers of that housing which officially was no longer enforceable but it was de facto de facto segregation as a matter of fact which affected schools jobs and all the other things and uh, we were actively involved in our churches Dr. King admired that because what he needed was young people and older people banding together. There was quite a bit of experience and background when the Civil Rights Movement began to come to Chicago. The um, fact that Chicago was so rigidly segregated made it clear that something that would be dramatic had to be done. He'd come through the Southern Movement with uh, great success and a great deal of respect from around the country. The Chicago Freedom Movement took their demands into the very neighborhoods that would not allow African-American families to live, and the result of these marches was a very overt racism. Cicero would be one of the communities uh, where we would have to march because it stands as a symbol of the recalcitrance, the resistance, and indeed all of the injustices surrounding the whole question of discrimination in housing. And when we marched west of, of Halston, we met the bricks uh, in ways that we'd never met in the South. Despite the brick throwing, name calling, and street fighting, Dr. King marched through many white neighborhoods. And no matter how much rejection this larger-than-life man faced, he walked proudly in protest of the slums that many blacks called home. While Dr. King was in Chicago, he took residence in one of the slums on the west side of Chicago to prove to the nation that the living conditions were inhumane. During his nine-month stay, the Chicago Freedom Movement organized many marches through Gage Park and Marquette Park that were met with many acts of violence. The marchers were met on the southwest side by uh, gangs of mostly young white people, and uh, the weapons were rocks and bottles. The efforts of the Chicago Freedom Movement did yield something significant. In 1968, after the assassination of Dr. King, the Fair Housing Act was signed into law. Locally, the Leadership Council for Metropolitan Open Communities was established by the movement to ensure that the new laws were enforced. Out of the Chicago struggle, which some was a failure, it was not, at least two things happened. One was that out of the Chicago struggle came Operation Breadbasket. 
urban economic with the use our consumer leverage to open up economic doors. That became the new paradigm for cooperation relating to uh, blacks and browns in business trying to grow and leverage our consumer strength. The other was the open housing drives laid the groundwork for the fair housing law of 1968, which became law just after Dr. King was killed. It wouldn't have happened as quickly if there had not been that movement, if King had not come and used his uh, star power to uh, raise the issue in the North. When we come back, Cheryl Burton examines where we are today in making the promise of civil rights a reality. Every year, we commemorate Dr. King's life and legacy. We listen religiously to his famous I Have a Dream speech. All across the country, we memorialize him for making gigantic strides in the push for equality. But the question still remains, how far have African Americans really come? In recent years, we've had many victories. The number of students enrolled in college has doubled and black-owned businesses are on the rise. Yet despite the progress made, many intellectuals believe the battle is not over. Come with us, invest in our success. Our success is your success. It's Chicago's success. It's America's success. For Cheryl Robinson Jackson, president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League, black America needs to realign its focus and look at the larger picture. If we don't find a way to be economically self-sufficient and create real sustainable and long-lasting economic infra infrastructure in our communities, um, we really stand in danger of becoming economically isolated. Well, I'm convinced now that uh, what urban America needs is what Dr. King saw 40 years ago. We need now urban investment. We are free, but not equal. We've overcome laws of indecency and barbarism, but not investment in education, uh, in healthcare, in jobs, and to close the disparity gaps in those areas. Although the challenge to overcome these obstacles may seem daunting to many, barriers have been broken, doors have opened, and many future generations have been recipients of that great movement. Growing up, one memory that stands out is my visit to Dr. King's gravesite. Although I was small in stature, that trip sparked me to write an award-winning essay, and it inspired me to pursue a career in journalism. Like many other children of the civil rights movement, we were all encouraged by its tenacious spirit. I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. He is an example of a strong movement. Harold Washington was a recipient of the struggles in Chicago to make the changes politically in the entertainment world of the, the uh, Oprah Winfrey, the Michael Jordan, 
they are all symbolic of the struggle to break segregation. Yes, the walls of segregation have been torn down, but what remains unanswered for many is, where do we go from here? Martin Luther King was killed in April of 1968. It's now February 2008, 40 years later, and we seem to be dealing with the same issues. What are your thoughts about four decades later, we still seem to be dealing with some of the same issues? I think unfortunately today we're very concerned with now and with what I can get today and how I live today. And we forget that any of us, our real legacy is what are we leaving our children? And if we're not living and acting and working and fighting so that our children have something better, then we've been just nothing but a selfish generation. When it comes to African-American history, it's usually a chapter or a paragraph, and it's usually about slavery, rather than kings and queens and, and, and all the great accomplishments and all the great discoveries that came from African-Americans. And I think it's a, it's a sin that in this day and age that our school systems in this country uh, do not teach African-American history, Latino history, except as electives. Why should they be electives? It's part of American history. Here in Chicago, efforts are being made to educate future generations about the struggle for civil rights. These sophomores at the School of Social Justice are doing projects about an African-American who inspired them, projects that will soon adorn a wall in their little village high school, devoted to Black History Month. He saw more violence here in Chicago in that summer of 1966 than he saw anywhere in the whole South all his years of organizing. Teacher Linda Becker is helping to bring the movement to life for students in her government economics class by enlisting one of the prominent Chicagoans at Dr. Martin Luther King's side during his time here. And next fall, thanks to the new Mikva Challenge curriculum, students at our Little Village High School and a handful of other Chicago public schools will know even more. They will be looking at, for example, how did the Chicago Freedom Movement choose their issue? They settled on the issue of open housing. Um, and so they'll look at that process and then also engage in their own process. Well, what's going on in our community? I'm very excited because I want to, you know, I want to know what, what went on if I could tell my kids and grandchildren. Within the last four decades, a lot has been accomplished. And with programs on the rise, like the one at the School of Social Justice, the future looks promising. When we come back, we'll have some parting thoughts. For more information about this program, log on to abc7chicago.com. Although the civil rights movement has ended, its legacy lives on. Today, we're reminded of the monumental efforts of many nameless individuals that fought valiantly for justice. Because of their fight, Chicagoans from all walks of life continue to bridge the gap of racial inequality. And while the battle isn't over, it's our turn to carry the torch that has been passed on to us. 
I'd like to thank the JWJ's Memorial Church Angelic Choir for lending their talents to our program, as well as my colleagues Cheryl Burton and Charles Thomas. We'll leave you with the work of John Tweedle, an African-American photographer whose images of Chicago in the 1960s leave a telling portrait of our lives then and now. I'm Harry Porterfield. Thank you for watching. I dream of a day you will honor the broken promise. The talk of the dream does not cost investment. To honor the promise will involve investment to close the gap. When you look and see people dragged in handcuffs, brought here and laid the foundation for the wealth of this nation, and yet they're still at the bottom. You know, you really wonder 40 years later, have we come very far? I tend to think sometimes that we haven't. There's some laws that have been changed. Some things are better. We have more politicians, more elected officials, more folks in corporate boardrooms. But is the mentality, is, is, the, is the cultural experience that people deal with day in and day out differently? No, maybe more sophisticated. I don't think any different. The generations after my generation and generations to come have to begin to unite you see, because I am an American. I just happen to be African-American. I'm an American. And I want this democracy to succeed and to flourish. Conceptually, it's a great thing. Practically, it has not done very. If we're to have an even playing field and have better outcome, we must commit ourselves to close those gaps, make all of us better and better off.